0: This is the Future of Agriculture podcast, the show that explores the people, companies, and ideas shaping the future of agribusiness. If you're curious about innovations in ag tech, rural entrepreneurship, ag sustainability, or food security, this is the show for you. Let's get started. Hello there. Thank you so much for joining. I'm Tim Hamrich. Want to give a special Thank you and shout out to some new members of the FOA community, Larry Kearns and Carl Lippert. Both of them happen to be ag tech startup founders, Larry at Tracker Sled and Carl at FedEx. So uh, go check them out, uh, each of those companies, Tracker Sled and FedEx. And if you'd like to join Carl, Larry and others in the FOA community, head over to patreon.com forward slash agriculture. All right. Tell me if you've heard this pitch before. We're going to bring buyers and sellers together in an online marketplace. I bet many of you have either heard that pitch or maybe even made that pitch at one point. One thing we've seen in agtech is that for marketplaces and other platforms, they're certainly easier said than done. This goes for commodities, services, freight, carbon credits, or anything else that can be exchanged online. Now, I see opportunities where marketplaces make a lot of sense. The old way is antiquated, maybe, and the lack of transparency allows some parties to sort of prey on others. But executing and growing a marketplace is extremely difficult. We dive into this topic today with Kelly James, the co-founder and CEO of Mercaris, a market information service and online trading platform for identity preserved agricultural commodities. So things like organic and non-GMO. Her customers are businesses that engage in the trading of these identity preserved products or that service those traders like banks, insurance companies, researchers and consultants. Kelly knows how to build a platform. She was part of building the Chicago Climate Exchange, which is the first electronic trading platform and registry for spot futures and options on carbon, sulfur, clean energy and environmental derivatives. There are some truly great insights here in this episode from Kelly on what it takes to build a platform and how she's building hers at Mercaris. Make sure you stick around to the end to hear some of the reasons she's getting pushback from trying to bring this type of service to the market. A quick note here on how I'm defining some terms. Now the word platform I'm using to encompass both marketplaces and exchanges, but those two are slightly different and exchange has a very rigid standardized contract spec. So think of like the CME in Chicago, whereas a marketplace might allow for customized offerings from various sellers. Kelly was appointed as a White House fellow in 2009 under the Obama administration and is an Aspen Institute Cato environmental fellow. We'll kick things off with Kelly giving us a more detailed introduction to Markaris.
1: Markaris does two things. We're a market data and information service. We are also an online trading platform. Um, but we have chosen to focus on a specific part of the ag supply chain, and that is identity preserved ag commodities, mostly um, in the grain and oilseed space. Although we did expand a little bit into dairy, and IP in our early days has meant organic, it's meant non-GMO. But there are a whole lot of IP traits out there that we could and hope to eventually focus on. Whether it's a you know it's a high oil you know, uh, corn or you know waxy corn or country of origin coffee. You know, it's anything that makes that commodity, it differentiates it from the larger supply chain and causes it to behave a little differently when it comes to supply demand and and price in particular. So we said this is a these are niche industries, but they're growing and there's some of them are still quite large, but you don't have the tools at your fingertips that you would have for conventional. You don't have a WASD, You don't have good tracking of the cash market. Um, you don't have good tracking of you know imports and exports, and so Mercara stepped in to provide that provide that analysis uh, for our customers. And then on the trading platform side, it's a way to buy or sell. Marketplaces are are funny things. We can talk a lot about marketplaces. I hope we do. Our our customers would describe it as a procurement tool or a way to manage inventory. For us, it is price discovery. We actually have kind of limited activity on our trading platform because we're only interested in certain certain commodities. And we're only interested in, you'll see my and my co-founder's background in the commodity exchanges, we want um, a good price discovery. So we don't let people endlessly customize terms uh, in terms of delivery, in terms of quality spec, you know, in terms of size of the contract, because we want to be able to report out a price from those trades rather than just let people you know, buy and sell, which they do, but, um, but that's, the, that's the goal. So that's Mercaris in a nutshell.
0: And is the big question in their mind, what is the market as far as what does the market look like? What are the bids? What are the offers? What's the volume? Mm-hmm. Or is it more where is the market going?
1: It's both. So you can imagine every link on the supply chain has different concerns. If you're a, if you're a seed company that's developing an organic you know, soybean seed, you might want to be doing some market research. How many organic farms are out there? How many acres under production are out there? You know, where do I sell this seed to? So that's some research understanding the price of the market so that when you contract with farmers to grow seed, um, you know what prices are doing. A grower, of course, is trying to figure out you know, do they plant a little more corn this year, a little more beans, some oats? Uh, and then you know what can they contract those, those crops for? And then, of course, the, the elevators have you know risk on both sides, you know, on the buy-in on the sell side, so they're trying to keep good track of the cash market all of them are or should be concerned about imports. Imports are a big part of the organic market. One big differentiator between organic and conventional is that in some commodities, we're actually a net importer rather than a net exporter. We do not grow nearly enough soybeans in this country to meet demand. So we import something like 80% of all organic soybeans are actually coming from outside the US. So that's, you know, that's part of the macroeconomic picture that, that folks want to understand. Or contract pricing. So we have a number of animal protein companies that uh, when they contract with the with producers, they need to understand feed costs um, because that impacts the producer's margin and therefore what they contract for production milk, whether it's milk or eggs or meat. So it just really varies. Someone like um a Robobank or a Compere, who are also customers of ours, they want to understand again how well their customers are doing because they're trying to assess risk uh, for their lending portfolio. A number of them are developing programs, lending programs that are tailored to organic growers because organic growers have this three-year transition period where they've got to grow according to organic standards. But they can't get the organic premium. What does that do to their cash flow? And then we have a number of, you know, trying to be stay innovative and, and, and anticipate what the market needs. We have a number of new initiatives. So for example, we are about to release a white paper on the valuation of certified organic farmland as compared to conventional. And we'll be looking at cash rents. And someone like a bank is, of course, interested. You can you could imagine how that's of interest to in various groups. So we're always, you know, looking for things that that kind of contribute to the underlying economics of uh, organic and non-GMO, and, and hopefully eventually other ag crops.
0: And that's your background, right? You're an economist.
1: I am. Uh, so I ended <laughs> well. Uh, I had a, a very uh, a scenic route to get there. I used to ride horses professionally. And I uh, I worked my first job for working on you know horse farms. I actually worked on a cow calf operation for a little while. My parents do not know where I came from. They're both New Yorkers, and they're like, "How in the world? <laughs> what what happened where you switched at birth?" But I've always really liked ag. I went to University of Kentucky, got injured riding, uh, decided I needed to go back to school and do something else with my life. So I went to grad school, and I actually did a master's in international development. And along the way, I ended up working with a group of coffee farmers. So this was a I was consulting for a development organization that was providing assistance and training to coffee farmers in Honduras. And this was the coffee crisis was, it was like the midst of the coffee crisis in the early 2000s. I and mean, it was really, it was really bad. So they were trying to get growers into like higher quality coffees and nobody was hedged and it was, it was just kind of a mess. And so I, I got super interested. It was like the gateway drug to be interested in commodity <laughs> markets. And started working on things that were like what else can bring value to these producers, whether it was a higher quality coffee, an organic coffee, you know, anything that the consumer would pay for uh, to get these guys out of out of the circle of you know ever decreasing prices. And that was my initial interest. And from there I went to the Chicago Climate Exchange, and that was again, it had a very large ag component. This was a cap-and-trade program where people could trade carbon credits. Ag had a role to play as a, a source of supply. Uh, ag has its own emissions story, but it also is a source of supply. If farmers adopted no-till and you know, captured methane off of dairy operations, they could sell credits into the market. And I was hooked. I mean, it was a way to provide real dollars in the pockets of producers who were undertaking something that had an environmental benefit. And I really, I liked the appeal of using a market mechanism to put a price and a value on something that we all need in society, which is you know, clean air, clean water, you know, healthy soils, that sort of thing.
0: Yeah. yeah. And that concept is still kind of lingered. You know, it's, it's actually yeah. kind of maybe revived, at least in ag circles in recent years. From your experience, really early on, in terms of trading carbon and farmers being a source of sequestering carbon, from that experience, what are your thoughts on all of that?
1: Well, I know we're recording in this in the midst of the corona hell. So yeah. I know like yeah. a lot of, I've been watching a lot of. Chatter on Twitter and other places about reviving, you know, carbon markets, and I think it seems like that's been on put on hold a bit for a little while. But eventually, we'll come out of this, and and the talk will start again. And you know, I have a few lessons learned. You know, Chicago Climate Exchange was the first place you could trade carbon. It was the first place you could put a price on carbon, and it was large scale. I mean, the year I left, eight billion dollars notional value of carbon traded across that platform. It was liquid. It had um, participation from the ag sector. It had participation from the energy sector, so American Electric Power and a few really big DuPont, a few really big emitters, were formed part of the core group. If CCX members had been a country, I think they would have been like this. I you can't remember. I don't want to misstate it, but it was a fair, It was 700 million tons of carbon emissions, and wow. so there were some hard lessons learned that I hope when we're ready as a country to start tackling this problem again, that we don't ignore. One is. Now, you've got to have both the supply and the demand side ramped up. So one of the things I feel like could be a bit of a mistake is that we've got some first movers in ag that are saying, hey, like, let's go ahead and stand up some, you know, we'll let you, we'll sell carbon. Everyone wants to sell, but where are the buyers coming from? A lot of it right now is sort of voluntary initiatives, which you can't depend on. And the whole point of carbon markets is to give the market assurances that you can make some real capital investments in you know, on-farm technology or manufacturing technology, the types of R&D that sometimes is not cheap because you know the demand is going to be there year after year. No one's going to spend what needs to be spent year one if in year five the whole market collapses. And so I think, you know, understanding how, um, where that demand comes from. CCX was voluntary, but we had our members sign a legally binding reduction commitment. They committed to uh, 1% per year reduction beyond the baseline that was, you know, signed, sealed, and we still had trouble lining up enough demand. I mean, the, the carbon price was a small, it was a lower price than I would expect we'd see economy-wide. But the second reason you want that is because you want people to, the sort of fear, I think, that I see from people who don't want a carbon market is, I think, a good fear in that, man, what is this going to cost and to whom? You want the lowest cost emissions out there. You, the goal is not to, is not, you don't get a gold star for spending the most money to reduce emissions. You get a gold star when we reduce emissions as a planet and achieve the, the reductions that we need to keep the earth from, you know, from warming. And so if I can do a reduction, then it costs me, you know, my marginal cost is $10 a ton and you can do an emissions reduction and the cost is $1 a ton. Well, you should be the one who moves first, not me. And so having a set of rules on the both supply and the demand side so that the market finds the lowest cost reductions, I think is really important so that this doesn't become a, you know more expensive than it has to be and that people also get, you know, they can actually make some money and get rewarded for the activity. So there's more to it than that, but that would be sort of my, my first thought. So, you know, you can get the ag side lined up to sell, but you got to find someone who's going to buy those things.
0: What happened to the Chicago climate exchange?
1: So the Chicago climate exchange um, was from 2005 ish, 2000 and let me think. Now I joined in, Yeah, I joined in 2005. It had been stood up a couple of years earlier by a fellow by the name of Richard Sandor. It set up, it had, you know, 13 founding members, big emitters. It was also had on the farm side. It had uh, folks like Iowa Farm Bureau and it had North Dakota Farmers Union um, as some of the ag founding members it grew to about 220 members through 2010. And then in 2010, it, all these folks traded in anticipation of a, of a federal cap and trade program that they thought was going to take place. Everyone thought it would take place. In 2009, the energy bill that, that contained the cap and trade provision came to the Senate and the House. It passed the House. It died in the Senate. And so all the rationale for trading evaporated almost overnight. It was real a real lesson to me in how fast the private sector can stand up a market when it has clear signals and how fast it can unwind that thing when the, the rationale is gone. And so everybody traded because they thought the federal government was gonna move. And when the federal government said, nope, we're backing away from it, uh, the whole thing dissipated. Trading still exists. There's the, the European trading markets that are still kind of sputtering along. In the US, there's some regional markets But it's never lived up to its potential and it's become kind of like a byline rather than a a real story.
0: Yeah. So now that we've seen this resurgence, I don't know if it really is a resurgence. It seems to me to be one because I'm hearing about it a whole lot more. You know, what's different now and kind of what's your take on today's thinking of we're going to incentivize farmers to move to regenerative Mm -hmm. practices by uh, monetizing the carbon they're sequestering?
1: Yeah. Oh, by the way, I should, as a note, Chicago Climate Exchange, right before the Whole market went to into the tank. It was acquired by ICE. Uh, so you know, the largest hmm. one of the largest commodity exchanges in the planet. It was acquired for about six hundred million dollars, and then the whole market fell apart. So it was um, not good for ICE. <laughs> yeah, uh, not right good for the planet. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So um, so anyway, so what's changed now? Well, what I hope's changed is sort of in the intervening dozen years. What I think has changed is the signs of climate change have gotten more and more stronger. So whereas a decade ago, it was we were still saying, hey, we're worried about it. Now we are seeing in real time the impacts of that. So I hope the motivation to continue to work on this has, has continued to increase. I actually now, back when I was in the carbon markets, there were kind of two schools of thought. One was a cap and trade market. The other was a carbon tax. I'm probably biased in saying I, I still to this day favor a carbon market rather than a carbon tax. But, you know, at this point, I'd just be grateful for anything. I mean, tax it if if that's what you have to do. I think, I think, though, the the reason I would be more in favor of a carbon carbon market is because you can make money from a market. Only people who make money from a carbon tax are are lawyers. And yeah, I mean, the tax will go into government, but I just, I am a believer that government can do things really, some things really well. Um, I know that makes me like maybe in the minority these days, (laughs) but I look at like, the different states that have lotteries, for example, and every lottery, every state says the same thing, like lottery money is supposed to go to education and very mixed results as to whether it does. So I I just am worried that a carbon tax becomes money that doesn't actually get allocated efficiently to solve the problem. And that also, the other argument is people say, well, carbon tax would be simpler than a cap and trade. And then I say, well, I mean, when I look at the U.S. tax code, I don't see simplicity. I, I see complexity that is created for people to kind of game the system and develop loopholes. And I, I, I fear that a carbon tax would be vulnerable to the same types of weaknesses. So cap and trade has a, a history of, of success. It, it worked with sulfur markets. We used to have acid rain and now we don't. And part of, and the big part of the reason is because the U.S. government under Bush one actually instituted a sulfur cap and trade market. We've got RINs. Um, we got rid of leaded gasoline uh, by using a, a, a market mechanism. And I think that carbon is... Kind of in that family of of you know would do really well. We'd we'd hit some goals at less cost, and and it could actually not cause the economy to uh, decline um, under Mm -hmm. an extensive cap and trade system.
0: Are you skeptical that a marketplace can work for this without the government's uh, uh, support in some way?
1: I am. Yeah, I don't. I just I don't think you know because it's too vulnerable to like for example. all right, I'll just take Mercar. Mercars is not that big and bad yet, but let's say we made a commitment to, you know, reducing our carbon. We're a B corporation, so we actually do have a commitment to reducing our, our carbon footprint. Hmm. Well, the reality is, the second that I, you know, that's not our main business, and the second that, you know, things get tight, we're not going to be able to buy carbon credits. And so, I don't think that, uh, you know, voluntary is not. And again, back to the point of investments are going to have to be made, long-term capital investments. If you're a bank, you've got to lend money for you know, a manufacturing plant to install energy efficiency technology. You've got to know that the program's going to be around 10 years from now, and there's no single company that can guarantee that. And that's the, that's the problem. If you want your scientists and researchers to research low carbon and energy intensive, they've got to, they've got to have an assurance that this is something that's a priority, you know, long term. And then you've got to be able to discard ideas that don't work or are too expensive. And there's no way to provide that signal unless we know what carbon costs. And I think the only, the only entity capable of making that sort of widespread, sending that sort of widespread single, signal is the U.S. government. State governments can do it on a smaller scale. There's a California market, there's a Northeast carbon market, but this is a global problem. We need the U.S. government and we also need to not abandon the Kyoto protocols because China's got to be involved in this. That's the other thing is the U.S. can do all it wants. And if China and India continue to burn coal, it's not going to do any good. So it's, it's, a, it's a tough problem for humanity because it does require collective action. And, and last time I looked, collective action is still best accomplished by the federal government.
0: Yeah, I mean, marketplaces just are tough in general, and, mm-hmm. and you all ha- have built a marketplace at Mercaris, not for carbon, but right. for identity preserved ag commodities. Was that always the goal? Is to build a marketplace, or did that come as a natural extension to the data that you were providing for customers?
1: Yeah, they are synergistic. So um, usually, when I give the presentation about Mercaris, I, I always say data and trading. And it's funny, there are folks who glom onto the trading. They're like, oh, yes, the trading, you know, because I think trading and marketplace, it's like sexy, right? People understand mm-hmm. it intuitively. Yep. And, but I will say by revenue, I mean, 15% or maybe a little less of our revenue comes from trading fees. Most of it comes from the sale of data. And I like to say that even the trading, we monetize it twice. We charge a small transaction fee when someone trades, but then we're able to feed that data, those insights into our market analysis. It's hard to build a liquid marketplace, really tough. Like I said, we intentionally limit what trades on our trading platform because we don't care, like don't, we don't wanna, conventional corn is not something that we need data on. We already know all there is to know about conventional corn. We only let people trade organic corn or blue corn or white corn because those are the things where we have less information about. We do two things. We will let people do brokered sort of bilateral trades on our platform because the reality is these are very thin markets. And, you know, if I bring something to sell today, I've got some blue corn, it may sit there for weeks before someone is out there looking to buy blue corn. And that's not good for markets when you don't have liquidity. So we will let people like broker trades. If they, you know, if they know someone that they think, you know, would want to trade, they can just use our electronic platform to kind of negotiate the details and whatnot. We also run auctions and auctions, for example, just, I guess three weeks ago we did a a dairy auction for organic cream. Auctions are good in a thin market because uh, it corrals everybody into a particular time and place and we for the cream auctions anyway we do them quarterly so everybody knows in the industry okay you can count on you know an auction everybody show up at the same place same time it thickens up the market and hopefully you get you know you get a smaller you know bid ask spread and get some you know get the deals done so that's the way we have approached um, doing it and then have admittedly that's not where our revenue drivers are are the data that comes off of those and, and other we run a survey as well where we collect information about prices
0: how do the auctions work? Is there like a lot minimum say, Hey, I've got so much mm-hmm. cream, organic cream. It's FOB here in, the, yep. in this one location, willing to entertain offers at a minimum price of, you know, X, Y, Z. Yeah.
1: So we run two types of auctions, a standard auction, and a reverse auction. Um, reverse auction would be uh, one buyer, many sellers. Uh, standard auction would be one seller, you know, many buyers. So whoever initiates the auction that determines if it's a, you know, reverse or standard. And then if it's, um, if it's standard auction and we've got the the seller there, then, then we've got the seller specs that, you know, it's FOB, let's say the farm. And so that way everyone's, you know, everyone's bidding off of a known, you know, you've got bids that you can compare, you know, apples to apples. Uh, so that's, and then the seller sets the terms, they've tested their grain, for example, or if it's a forward sale, they will test their grain, but they're saying like, it's going to be a number two, yellow corn, you know, FOB, central Illinois, Delivery for this particular window. That's another thing. We had to kind of enforce is to say like you can't just leave it open-ended like it needs to be We ask for you know, we ask enforce a 30-day delivery period If it's the buy side the buyer is setting the, the specs they are saying, you know We we are buying and it's delivered to you know, let's say whatever facility um, And they're looking for a number two yellow corn etc cetera, etc cetera. and again now the sellers can can offer on a you know consistent uh, location so that they can all kind of do the numbers and and, and figure out freight Um, So that's really how they work. So day of the auction comes, uh, everyone's been pre-qualified ahead of time. So on the buy side, we're looking for your ability to pay (laughs) mainly. Mm -hmm. If you're on the sell side, we're looking for, especially with identity preservation, well, we make sure that you don't have a lien or anything else on the grain. There's no financial Mm -hmm. reason why you couldn't participate, but that you are in good standing with your certifier. So again, back to the identity preservation, there's always a question about fraud uh, Non-GMO, it's a little easier, you can just test, but there's no test to say that something's organic. And so we're looking that they to see that they're in good standing with their certifier, they're in good standing with their bank, and then once they're cleared, they can go on and enter bids or offers as the case may be. We match them, or our system, our platform matches them, best bid or best offer. And then when the auction is over, Mercaris is not a logistics company, so they've seen all the specs and delivery terms and whatnot. Then we, we leave it to them. We introduce them because the auction is blind. They don't know who they're bidding or offering, who's, who's hit their bid, let's say. Uh, but, but they one, know where
0: the farm is. Right, they,
1: right. Yeah. More or less. I We're mean, the, that's the other thing.
0: The pickup point.
1: Yeah. And, and that, the other thing is in this industry, <laughs> it's small enough that sometimes people are really good guessers. <laughs> like, oh, who's, yeah. who is that? So we do what we can to protect the anonymity. Sometimes people can guess. Yeah. Sometimes we'll give a little bit broader you know, location. But then once they arrange the, you know, with their hauler that and the, the auction is or the, the delivery is complete, that's when we charge our transaction fee. We have the ability to push money so we can put money into an escrow account and then uh, push it to the seller. Not everybody takes advantage of that. Some people would just rather pay directly, which is fine with us, but we can support that functionality if they want. We are not a freight company, nor do we arrange freight. So they, it's up to them to, to figure that out. We are members of NGFA. So... In the event of a dispute, they can take it to arbitration if they can't work it out themselves. Um, and then once the delivery is made and scale tickets are uploaded to our system, that's the end of the transaction.
0: Hmm. I really like the auction setup. That's novel to me. I don't know of anybody else kind of doing that. Is that pretty unique to Mercaris in ag commodities?
1: It came out of uh, our experience at CCX. Uh, honestly, yeah. when you're standing up a brand new market and you've got one side but not the other side lined up or you know these thin markets or weird markets, you know they die because of lack of you know lack of liquidity, and so it was a technique we used in the early days of the carbon markets. It was a technique we adapted um, here, and you know we're still flexible enough that, like I said, people want to do sort of a bilateral one to one trade. We can support that too. as an economist, I love auctions for their like pure price discovery and watching the you know watching the spread or watching them not fill sometimes you know every now and then we, here's the other secret when you're starting a, a marketplace. you try not to hold things that you don't have. You don't know the demand or the supply is there. So this is again why we will sometimes just say to the customer, you know, the reality is we are probably not the best solution for you. I'll give you an extreme example. We had someone contact us because they wanted um, veganic wheat production. I didn't even know what that was. I was like, what is veganic wheat production? It is wheat production, not just organic, but where you don't use any animal manure at all for fertilizer. So we were like, well, that's weird. I don't know who will do that. I mean, most organic operations do rely on manure. And so we said, you know what? Don't bring that to an auction. That's We are not the best tool for that. Go find the farmer who is willing to like take a chance on that and knows how to do that and just negotiate with them directly. This Our platform is probably not the best tool for that. So yeah. if you look at our volumes, like last year we traded 423,000 bushels of organic and non-GMO grain across our platform the whole, whole year. This year... Yeah, we've only got a quarter of the year on the, the, the books, but we're we'll, we're we're hoping to do you know six hundred thousand bushels, and then we do these cream auctions. Um, we'll do probably maybe a hundred thousand uh, pounds of cream.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, the hard part with auctions though is uh, is the adjusting of the terms. You know, because maybe a buyer might say, "Oh, I buy that cream at that price mm-hmm. at that location. If I could pick it up over six months instead of." One yeah. month, or you know what I mean? Hey, yeah. How do you how do you manage for that?
1: Well, and again, this is why we're not a, a true. We don't make our money just on the, uh, or even a majority of our revenue is not coming from auctions because some things we just won't do. We you have
0: said, yeah,
1: yeah, we want less flexibility. We, if, if you're a buyer that wants the sort of very customized, then the, we're probably not the, the tool for you. You know, grain actually more than the dairy side, grain had that problem. Organic, I think, just because organic tends to be smaller and it's it's just newer. I mean, we had. We had people like report contracts where we run a survey too to collect uh, cash prices where they'd have a price, you know, $9 delivered for, you know, organic corn. And the delivery was like any time over six months. And there was no provision for storage or for carry, you know, for carry, which is A, crazy. Somebody is eating those carry costs, whether you itemize them or not. But B, we can't report a price there, like $9 when, so we said, sorry, don't report those. We only, we only want and we only want transactions where you are limited to a 30 day delivery window. Now we can run a second auction for you. you know, This month you want, you know, you want 10,000 bushel in October, you want 20 in November, you want 30 in December, just run separate events. And that's how we kind of approached it.
0: That's a good yeah. idea. Yeah. yeah, that makes a lot of sense. But then of course, you know, a lot of the grain, it sounds like if not all the grain is more over the marketplace and not the auction. Is that right?
1: It's more the marketplace. I mean, because we've got some really small, like we had, um, oh, last year, I think we did like three or four organic blue corn transactions. It's just too thin even for an auction. So in that case, there's literally a half a dozen entities in the country that really handle blue corn. (laughs) You know, they just were able to connect, you know, with those folks directly and then negotiate terms. But we still want to get a price out of it. Once they do that, we still collect the price and and right. um, we're trying to kind of corral them into a certain set of standards that we can then report.
0: Yeah, that to me is sort of the magic here because I see a lot of marketplaces and I I think you know, boy, does that need to exist first yeah. of all? Second of all, are they going to get enough participation on both sides to make a scalable business out of that right. for you you know the biggest value to you is it's feeding the data which right. is where you, i think you said 85% of the revenue ends up coming from as you look out there at other marketplaces having done this now on carbon and on identity preserved ad commodities what big mistakes do you see out there either that you've made or that you see other marketplaces making Ooh. that Makes it yeah. very, very challenging to build a marketplace.
1: Yeah, I mean, whew, marketplaces are tough. I mean, for all the entrepreneurs that are out there doing it, and I do believe that they're hitting on a need. And I mean, it, it just seems silly that in you know 2020, so much is like you know pen and paper and or hanging up for hours on the phone. And so I see the application of technology, and I think at their core, that's what they're you know what everyone's trying to do. I do think that it's a it's a model that should benefit from venture capital because you got to scale and scale quickly. I mean, there's there's a reason that the big commodity markets, the futures markets are, they're kind of natural monopolies, right? Like no, no one's been successful at starting another corn futures market. Um, really, you go to CME or you go kind of nowhere. I mean, maybe you go to South Africa if you only want white corn, but but the reason is because liquidity is everything. Like you've got to be able to get in and out of the market. You've got to be able to, you know, take a position and unwind it, you know, fast. And so there's really no room for a ton of competitors. And that's where VC can be useful. You've got to, you know, establish yourself as the marketplace. So getting out ahead of others that are, that are trying to do the same thing I think is important. And then I think just being clear about your business model. So I think there are some marketplaces out there that are kind of like, you know, Craigslist is very successful. Etsy is very successful. Like I think establishing whether you're a marketplace or you're trying to be an exchange is really important because I think there's room for really successful marketplaces where people can go and buy and sell, you know, corn or cotton or what have you, but they're not necessarily like when I look at CME, I don't know if these entrepreneurs are trying to design like a prototypical, like for a CME, or they just are satisfied with saying like, we can get a lot of transactions done, take a transaction fee, and then everybody's happy. You know, I think the lessons from exchanges are, are good in the sense that like even CME, which makes most of their money from transactions. If you look at their 10 K, they make like a third of their money, quarter to a third of their money is from data. Mm-hmm. And because people can build other risk management tools off of, you know, you get a CME price, And you can build other stuff off of it, whether it's an insurance product, whether it's an OTC product, that's the real value versus a straight marketplace where like, and I use Etsy as the example where Etsy is very active. People can get things done, but everything is a customized bespoke transaction. It doesn't necessarily lend itself to broader product development. So I think that, I don't know that it's a mistake. I think it's just being really clear in what, what it is your company is striving to achieve.
0: And the differentiation there between marketplace and exchange is—is is it the standardization of the offerings? That's or, exactly or, it. Okay. okay. Yeah. 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 Huh. Yep. Makes sense. What about the data part? You know, data in, in agriculture, especially among farmers, right now is a very hot topic. Mm-hmm. Uh, trying to figure out, like, wait, what data of mine are you taking? What are you doing with it? What are the yeah. risks that come back on me of the data? How have you all approached that?
1: Well, so a couple things. One is, and this goes back to why we chose to do organic markets, not necessarily because I believe organic is the only way to farm. Like we're really clear about saying like we don't try to tell people how to farm or how to run their businesses. We say, this is an opportunity, it's a market. If you would like to be assessed whether this is the opportunity for you, you should have really good data to make that decision on. Or if you're in the market, you should have good data to run your business. Um, We don't say like, oh, we don't like conventional farming or we don't like, you know, it's an individual choice. But one of the things that appeals to me personally um, about organic is that it is, again, a market-based mechanism to incentivize environmental performance. So, you know, the carbon market was an economic, a, a financial tool to incentivize emission reductions. This is a financial tool to incentivize, you know, soil health, reduced pesticide use, reduced chemical use, farm worker safety and health. It's paying people for those attributes. Um, that society says are important, and now now the market can prove whether society actually puts their money where their mouth is and and pays for those those things that they say they want. Right. With Mercaris, we do it's it's price data. So we do a couple things. We try to whenever we are reporting a cash price, it's aggregated. We never disclose any individual farmers or buyers data. So it's always a volume weighted average price. There's other sort of more mundane policy things that I think are not that hard to solve. Like for example, we have a list of we, I mean we've got 750 growers on our platform. We don't sell their data to anyone. We have good data, you know, protocols in terms of protecting our databases and that sort of thing. Our business model is not to sell advertising so we can we can sign NDAs with them and say in terms of service that say we that's just not our, our business. Um, right. and so we don't have a right to send out your 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 email to anybody who comes in and ask. Um, and we don't, we don't send your price out. We only collect prices, average them and report out an average price.
0: Okay. Yeah. That to me seems like the big, the big distinction because essentially your business, it seems like is, uh, Hey, we're going to offer you a place to market your identity preserved products and, you know, some insights that go along with Mm -hmm. that. And in exchange, we're going to take the data, anonymize it and then monetize it. and, And, uh, that seems to me to be very above board i just wondered if yeah. you got any pushback well, about well what about my data i don't know that i really want to share it shared with everybody
1: i'll tell you the pushback we get more often is that like with any market that's opaque there are people that would rather not know you know rather not yes. have more transparency so more of the pushback we get is like well i feel like i'm getting a really good deal i don't really want i don't want people to have more transparency around these markets to which we always say That's fine, you know, but we are well into the information age. And my own feeling is that anybody whose entire business model depends on other people not knowing things is in a very precarious position. (laughs) So you've got to be providing other services, not just like I know the things that you don't know.
0: Yep, because they're capturing really wide margins and arbitraging markets because of uh, asymmetric information. Yeah,
1: that's right. Mm-hmm. That's right. And those that and that it just doesn't last. It's not you know. No,
0: it, it doesn't. doesn't. It's not it, sustainable. Yeah, and then your customers eventually find out about it. Right. It doesn't look so good. Right. Um. In, in the foreseeable future, here, you know, what's the next milestone you're excited about at Mercaris, or what's coming next that you can share?
1: Yeah. So, um, we are always rolling out some new and exciting uh, products. So we um. A couple things. I mentioned the the farmland survey, uh, organic farmland valuation survey. We are also we're expanding our dairy platform. We we are the only place that does acreage reports for organic because we go directly to the certifiers. So so a lot of our, my exciting milestones are things that are new products that we roll out, and because we are a business, the new products that lead to you know revenue. So because we've gotten investment capital, we've raised right at just over seven million dollars to date. All of that, though, comes with a price. Those are investors that have an equity stake. And my rather sort of old-fashioned view, although I think it's becoming more prevalent now that we're in the midst of what's probably a recession, really serious recession, is that you know, these venture-backed businesses have to become profitable. You know, Gone are the days, or hopefully they're coming to a close where you can just continue to raise endless rounds of money at these spectacular valuations. At some point, you got to make more money than you spend. And so for us, our next milestone, which we're looking to achieve in the next, you know, 18 months is um, profitability.
0: Fantastic. You, you mentioned uh, when we started that identity preserved does mean organic and non-GMO, mm-hmm. but doesn't only mean right. organic and non-GMO. What are the areas of the identity preserved realm that you're most bullish on that you think maybe the volume will kind of pick up yeah. over time? Yeah,
1: and for us, we're trying not to, like, we're not creating markets. We're only going in and providing information about markets that, that exist. So we have a couple of tests that we apply. One is um, notional value. Is it big enough? Is the cash crop, you know, quarter of a billion dollars and, and rising? Um, that's for us constitutes big enough to be interesting. Is it volatile? So if you've got sort of steady, stable prices, there's no pain being felt, why you know why cover it? Is it an actual, um, you know, is it a fragmented market? So sometimes the example I give is like, I would never cover the diamond market because De Beers owns like 80% of it. You don't haggle. You just go to De Beers, they give you a price. And I don't know if it's still true, but I've heard quinoa markets are, or used to be like that. There was kind of two big importers that dominated. So we don't go after those types of markets. So if it meets those tests and then entry, yeah, I think I mentioned entry or volatility, then we're interested in it. So we're looking at a couple things. We're looking at um, country of origin coffee. So that is a coffee is such a, a huge market. And there are a number of products out there to manage, let's say like Robusto or, or Arabica beans, but there's quite a lot of risk that's in country. Um, and so, you know, whether it's due to currency or whether it's due to rust or, you know, or labor unrest, um, you can do a perfect hedge on the, global commodity markets coffee markets and then still have your hedge kind of fall apart when you get down to the local level so we're looking at coffee a lot of stuff we're looking at is outside of the u.s now so that's kind of our next you know our next move right now we focus very much on the u.s and canada but stage stage two is looking outside the united states
0: Thanks again to Kelly James of Mercaris for being on the show. I really enjoyed that. I think there were quite a few relevant insights there for those of us trying to solve problems in agriculture about platforms, marketplaces, exchanges, and also things like carbon credits and identity-preserved commodities. It's good stuff. I'm really enjoying the topics we've been able to put out lately, but I'm open to, to new ideas as well. So if you have any topic ideas, that is, Find me on Twitter. I'm at Tim Hammerich, or you can also email me tim at aggrad.com. Thanks so much for your time and your attention. I really don't take it lightly. I'll be back next week with you with another story of ag innovation.